This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. God will always raise up his Luthers and Tyndales, his Whitfields and Wesleys, and his purposes will advance again, writes Terry Virgo in his new book, God's Treasured Possession, published by IVP. These lives are so instructive to us. We derive such inspiration, hope, and stimulus from them. At Christian Heritage London, we spend a good deal of our time telling the stories of these people, these heroes of the faith. And while no Christian would doubt the value of these stories, Paul writes of God's dealings with his people through Moses, that now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And Terry Virgo is another of our guests who has a track record, like names in church history, not of being preoccupied with self-vindication and scholarly advancement, but rather with the establishment of local churches. Perhaps it's therefore no surprise that the title of the book is God's Treasured Possession, and that it's dedicated to the church he established in Brighton, the church in which I grew up. I remember well the application that was made of Moses' story in a series of sermons that he preached on Exodus. In fact, I propose that they were formative to me, but perhaps we'll come on to that later. Do you remember how you decided to preach the series on Exodus that you preached? Well, thank you, Ben. Um, yes, I do remember. I felt God said to me, you're going on a journey as a church. We started as a quite a small company and were growing quite rapidly and uh, changing buildings and on a journey. And I felt God said to me to lead the church by going through a series on Moses and just following the story. The Lord, of course, takes hold of Moses at birth. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating that from the beginning it says that uh, he was, by his parents' faith, he's safe, he was saved. It comes out clearly in Hebrews chapter 11 that they expressed faith by uh, looking after their boy at a terrible time. He was born at a time when all the male children were meant to die and by faith they preserved him. And uh, he had this privilege of being raised in a believing home. I know some of us would rather be uh, born in terrible debauchery and then have a, a later conversion that we can celebrate. But to be born into a believing home is a huge privilege, and that was his experience. And you say he grows up in the palace of Pharaoh, and as you describe, uh, Josephus actually proposes that Moses was an effective military leader. So he learned something about a style of leadership in a military and in a secular capacity, as it were. And yet, the approach that you took to his story was you've drawn out not simply leadership tricks and techniques. You've drawn out the story of a man who is not chosen for his ability, but one who God shapes and molds to be a leader in another way. As you have led chur a church and churches and a movement of churches over decades, do you remember particular lessons you've learned? I think that uh, Moses was plainly taught in Egypt uh, to become a young prince. And uh, it says he became mighty in word and deed. In other words, I guess he became fairly self-assured as a young prince. And uh, that becomes apparent when he uh, comes out from the palace and kills an Egyptian and later comes out again and bangs two Israelite heads together. It's like he's resourceful. He he took it for granted. They'd understand, uh, you know, he he's their deliverer. I mean, he, pay, he made an internal decision to number himself with these despised slaves, which was a, a noble thing to do. But his activity was fairly self-centered and uh, coming from his own resourcefulness 
because that was a terrible uh, mistake, mm. which we look at in the book, and he has to run for it. And then later, it says God uh, heard the cry of his people. God uh, saw their their need, and said, so God said, I have come down to deliver them, and I send you. Now, that's a completely different deal. No longer Moses' initiative or strength of personality, but actually God himself saying, I'm going to do this thing. Mm. And so we find that Moses becomes a servant rather than an initiator, a responder to God. In fact, very much humbled by this encounter and actually says, I, I can't speak. Whereas before, had the, the testimony, he was mighty in word. Uh, he could say what he liked. Wow. He was a young prince. But when God began to use him, he'd been drained of all that uh, self-confidence. Mm. And I think that uh, that I do find that in, in, in the, the work of God, that people who are rather full of themselves, they may be very skillful, but not necessarily very helpful. Uh, I feel safer with guys who are clinging to Jesus. Yeah. yeah, they may have abilities, but they're very aware that it's God who's called them, God who's commissioned them, and, and that makes all the difference. Mm. Now, it'd be interesting to hear you talk to me about wildernesses, and particularly, what's the difference between what God does with a man in a wilderness and what fatalism does with a man in a wilderness? I think that probably Moses had given up on what his early dream was. Uh, it says in Hebrews that by faith he chose to be with the despised people. By faith he refused uh, all that Egypt was offering. So that was a, a big step, and, uh, and we often associate Moses with law-keeping, and we tend to think, well, he was doing what his parents would require of him, but his parents were long gone. He was separate from his parents. He's now a mature man, and we're told that by faith he decided to make this choice. It was something he, he thought, no, it's better to be with, yeah, the slave community, however unattractive the slave community was, uh, so that was a very noble decision. But as we were saying, he was a, a mixture of making a good heart choice and, a, and full of himself probably as a, a strong prince. When he was in the wilderness, I think probably all that was drained out of him. He'd got married, he had children. I think probably he'd left his past behind him. And uh, uh, I would think he might have even resented what happened before. Uh, that you find that when God comes to him to call him, uh, Moses is actually saying, no, thank you. And we think, wow, God has just appeared to him, this extraordinary phenomenon of a bush that burns, of a revelation of the name of God, something new in the Bible, I am that I am. You think, wow, here we go. And instead of saying, yeah, okay, here we go, uh, Moses says, no, thank you. Uh, I'm not, no, I'm not, going, I'm, not, I'm not up for this. You think, what happened to you, Moses? And I think what happened to him is, what happens often to us that when God makes us uh, an invitation to some new day, we, we don't come with a clean sheet. We come with some history, nearly all of us. We, we don't have a blank sheet of paper. We, we have tried in the past and it didn't work. And sometimes because other people have let us down. And, and Moses, I would think, for 40 years walking around a wilderness, might have frequently thought to himself, wow, those guys... I risked everything for them. Wow. Uh, I, I, I left the palace. I identified with them. And what did they do? They turned back on me. They turned against me. I had to run for it. And all the luxury of the palace 
is gone. He's now looking after a few sheep. So his whole life, it's like I lost everything for the sake of these guys. And then God said, now go to them. Uh, and Moses' reaction is, what if they don't believe me? It's like, I've been there before, it doesn't work. And there's kind of resentment, really. And I believe that we can, we often build up things in our hearts, experiences that take place. And sometimes when we're in a wilderness, some of it is a mixture of yeah, providential guidance and sometimes bad attitudes in our own heart. You know, why didn't they accept me? Why wasn't I used? Why why did they not? Their brothers turned against me. If we carry that resentment, then the wilderness is a very horrible place. And so Moses, I believe, was drained of his self-assurance. And when God called him, it was God chose. We're told in 1 Corinthians, God chooses the weak things and the foolish things and the things that are not. And by this time, yeah, Moses is now qualified. He doesn't choose many mighty. And Moses used to be mighty, so he had to have that drained out of him. And then so by the time God calls him, yeah, he's he's a weak man. Now God can use him. He becomes the meekest man in all the earth. That's what God says of him. Mm. So he's a useful man to God. God's dealt with his inner man, and he's, he's going to shape and form a new man, a remarkable man, as, mm. the, as the story goes on to tell. Mm. And again and again, we see that pattern. But then he says, let my people go, back to Pharaoh. And uh, you speak little in the book about the plagues, but there is gold in your detail on the Passover. You draw attention particularly to how the blood is for the Lord to see. You labor that point. Is this something which you've seen people misdirecting themselves towards? I think sometimes we're trying to find inner peace emotionally or psychologically. And uh, we have these enemy attacks, you know, fiery darts that come at us and different believers go through different challenges. And I think find, trying to find peace sometimes can come through an internal inspection. Why can't I find peace? And I've associated that with perhaps the Israelites who were told to put the blood of the lamb on the outside of their house. And so I just point out that it wasn't for them to keep opening the door and looking at the blood on the outside of the house and thinking, I don't feel any different. I my heart doesn't feel different. I don't psychologically feel anything right. from that. Right. And God didn't say it, the blood is for your psychology. God said the blood is for me to see because only God knows the immense value of the blood of the lamb. And God is at peace because the blood of the lamb has been shed God is satisfied. And if God is satisfied, that's where I find my peace, being justified by faith in that shed blood because God is satisfied. God's fury is dealt with in the slaughter of the lamb. Mm -hmm. uh, so we derive peace from the fact that we're, God, is, God is at peace with us now. Mm -hmm. So the blood is for God. God knows the value of the blood of the lamb. And that was the point I was uh, making in that particular chapter. The blood is for the Lord to see. It's a striking parallel with the fact that when the Lord saves a person, he often saves a person out of a problem or a number of problems that were very obvious. And then when they get saved out of them, they almost associate the Lord with that little fixed job he did. The Lord wasn't just saving you out of a problem, or he wasn't just saving you that you might feel warm. He was saving you into the relationship behind eternity. This 
relationship, which you, you, you talk about with this I am that I am, awesome. You say, you talk in terms of how this is a highly mysterious term, but it is also one which gives wonderful certainty to a person. I am that I am. It's a relationship which will astonish and will fill eternity. And a person isn't just going to guess that. So it's a delight to hear you drawing attention to that uh, perspective. Then you talk powerfully about prayer. And this is one of the things which I most remember about the series on Exodus that you preached in the first place. If you remember, back at the time when we learned, um, to, when we, we were all praying for the building in Brighton, you tell the story, just in passing, of an, a story which I was mentioning with a friend who lived through it with me. And I, we were reflecting. I said, I think it's probably the most exciting thing I ever lived through. <laughs> it was a moment when, as a church, we had outgrown the church building in which we had been meeting and were paying huge sums to rent a cinema. And you decided, no, we're going to try and buy a, another building. The council said you can't change it into a church. It was a unanimous decision. Yeah, what happened was that we were informally told that they would have no objection to our buying this warehouse in the centre of Brighton. And on the strength of their informal agreement, we took it that that was an okay and then raised a large offering, which in itself was a miracle from our people, and then made our offer, but were then completely rejected by the council for change of use from a former warehouse, a comet warehouse, to becoming a church. They were very dismissive, uh, somewhat mocking even, that uh, that we would let this property in the centre of Brighton become a church. It's a good industrial place. Why on earth would we do that? And uh, so their tone completely changed, and we were uh, rejected out of hand. And so I said, can we make an appeal? And their response was, uh, look, this is 100%. Uh, refusal, the council, 100%. If if it had been a 60-40 uh, kind of almost divide, uh, you could have appealed. If it was 70-30, 80-20, it's just not worth it. 100%, hey, forget it. And I, I thought, no, God has directed us to this thing. And so we did write an appeal. We worked hard on the appeal. But then we prayed very fervently for a few weeks as the appeal had gone in that uh, God would use this appeal and completely reverse uh, their refusal, which, praise God, happened. We, we had that, as you say, very exciting experience as a church. And it's wonderful as a people on a journey to come up to that, to gather the church, to pray together. We gather big prayer meetings to, so that people, uh, I've heard pastors who were part of the church at that time, young men who went on to become pastors of other churches, who've said to me, I learned to pray during those times because we, we prayed together strongly. Mm. And the story of Moses where Amalek comes against them and it says that Joshua went into the valley to fight the battle. But he finds out the battle's being won elsewhere. Yes. Moses in the mountain is lifting the rod, which is by now called the rod of God, um, mm. and uh, initially just a stick in his hand, but somehow it represents God's covenant commitment to them. And God, Moses, as it were, lifts this into the presence of God. And when he grows weary, Aaron and her help and when his arms are up, they win. When his arms come down, they lose. So prevailing prayer was the way in which we, we went through to our next phase. Mm. It was an extraordinary thing to live through. And uh, funnily enough, 
in a sense, it just felt like this is this is normal church life. And then you realize later, oh, no, that wasn't normal church life. <laughs> and But then as you read the stories of church history, again and again, you find things which look so familiar. I see John Newton recently writing to his friend saying, I feel some people get to drink the waters. I feel like I just get a little sip. But he says, I do believe that the death of Jesus is effective. And I do believe, and later Tim Keller will call you the greatest pastor he's ever heard of. (laughs) He's just so ordinary and relatable to. How do you relate the whole question of Moses' relationship with God to his effectiveness in prayer? Because there are some now who would take it as an equation. Do this, do this, and you will get that. I think that Moses had an extraordinary relationship with God, which he knew had its origins in God. He knew his own reluctance. He knew that he was God's servant. He wasn't initiating something. He didn't start with his own plan. In fact, he was very reluctant. He said, get someone else to do it. I don't want to do it. And so he knew he wasn't an initiator. He was uh, responding to God. He knew that he was commissioned by God. And so in terms of prayer, he was laying hold of God that God might do what he had committed himself already to doing. He said that he was going to give them the land. Uh, I love the the song of Moses in Exodus mm-hmm. 15, mm-hmm. where before, well, he, all he's experienced so far is this dramatic and amazing deliverance. But in the song, which is like Psalm 1 in the Bible, really, mm-hmm. uh, he sings out and he said, you will bring them into the land, uh, into the sanctuary. You think, what do you mean? How do you know this stuff? You know, they might run for it. When you think how Hollywood tells the story of Moses, it's all about just slaves getting freed, crossing uh, right. the Red Sea. And Moses isn't saying they'll run for it. They'll all run in different directions. He somehow knows they're going into a land, they're going to a mountain, they're going to a sanctuary. Wow. All this is very prophetic, that God's got a purpose for them. And so when Moses is praying at various times where he almost seems to be praying against God, where God says, I'm going to judge them, I'm going to wipe them out. Uh, And Moses says, no, don't wipe them out, bring them in because of your great name. Mm. So he's not trying to impose his will on God. He's saying, God, your name. Uh, And also, what will the heathens say that you were not able to bring them in? Mm. What about your promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob? And so it's always the glory of God That is his motivation. Mm. And at one point, God actually says to him, let me alone that I can curse them. And I think it's one of the most wonderful statements about prayer, that a man can hear God say to him, let me alone so that I can do this. And it's like like saying, Moses, you have authority in my presence, but Moses won't let him alone. He said, no, bring us in. At one time, God says, I'll send my angel, but I'm not coming with you anymore. Mm. And Moses says, if you don't come with us, we're not going anywhere. This is what makes your people distinct, that you come with us. Mm. And so in, in the story of Moses, one of the things that comes through again and again is his extraordinary personal ministry of intercession on their behalf. And of course, in that sense, reminds us of the great mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ, who stands on our behalf. Mm. So Moses is a a type of Christ in that. Mm -hmm. But he's not trying to impose his will on God. He's not saying, this is the prayer package. If you learn to do these things, you can get what you like from God. Uh, he's He's a man whom God 
has imposed his will upon, but he's learned to lay hold of God in prayer to see it happen. Mm. And I think that's one of the keys to prayer, that we're saying, Lord, this is what you promised. This is what you said. So you find in Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you, plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and hope. You think, wow, that's a great verse. Um, uh, But the next verse says this, then you will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all your heart. So you seek God for his plans to be fulfilled, for his purpose to, uh, and that's what Moses has learned. And uh, Moses seems to see something of the God-centeredness of God. You talk in terms of his being God-besotted. Moses leads the people into the desert, uh, and of course they mumble against him, and he has the intense pressure upon him. You say at one point, two of the most famous figures in the Old Testament, both honored by God to be present at the awesome Mount of Transfiguration, new times when they would be happy to die to escape the pressure. I'd be interested to hear you talk about the despondency that uh, leaders and Christians can face and how you see Moses as an example of someone who walks through it, comes out the other side. Yes, I think it's fascinating to see how the Bible paints pictures of its heroes uh, so that you find Elijah saying, I'm no better than my father's, let me die. Moses says, you know, are you against me? You're giving me so much pressure. You know, David says at one point, I shall die at the hands of Saul. And so I love, yeah. I love the fact that, uh, that God has revealed himself uh, through stories of his relating to human people. He could, have, he could have given us a kind of systematic theology. Right. You know, our Bibles could say, you know, God is omnipresent, God is omniscient, God <laughs> yes. is... Uh, but it doesn't. It tells us about people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all their character, you know, what a crook Jacob was, and, and, all, uh, and then you see God relating to human flesh, human yes. people. Yes. Uh, and so you see, sometimes, the, as Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the glory may be of God and not from us. And sometimes the, the earthen vessel is allowed to become very obvious. And so you find in Moses' time when he, he feels, I can't handle this pressure. And I think that many people in ministry have known times like this hmm. where they kind of run out. And I think that pastors are feeling like Moses did. How do I feed these people? That's when the the call comes. You know, they say we're fed up with this manner. We want to eat something more. And 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 Moses feels I've got to somehow feed. Are you giving me these people? Uh, you know, I didn't bring them to birth. Why do I have to feed them? I think sometimes pastors go through that agony, especially if they've had a demanding week and Sunday comes around and they've got to have a press, they've got to preach a sermon. And I know for myself, when I first started as a pastor, I used to have to preach like three times a week, midweek, twice on Sunday. And I've got to preach, I've got to prepare another, another word, now another word. And you feel, I can't do this. God's asking too much of me. And I think sometimes we go through that where you, where you you almost feel it's up to me to do it and I can't do it. And uh, I think Moses reached that point and he needed a fresh discovery and reminder because God says, hey, what about my my great arm, my strength, my ability? I've called you, I will, I will supply. And sometimes pastors, others even, many people mm. in their lives, they need to know a time 
when not only we kind of feel I'm at an end, but like Paul says, that we may not trust in ourselves, but in him who raises the dead. Wow. And uh, I don't know how many times I've been raised from the dead uh, over the decades of my mm. Christian walk, mm -hmm. but I've certainly known times where I thought, I've had enough, I can't do this. Mm. And then you meet with Jesus afresh and you feel his love again and his, his kindness and his call and his ability to pick you up again mm. and take you on. And the Psalms often reflect that. Mm. You'll find Psalms that begin with this kind of help, I can't help it. Uh, and then the end of the Psalm uh, begins to say, I will trust him, I believe in him. Uh, and we're not Stoics. We're not called to just press on mm with our own willpower yes we're, we're called to a relationship with a tender shepherd Amen. who lifts us up again and mm. helps us it's a personal relationship with a god who will be there for us when we feel our need well this is it i'm sorry to say that there is a tendency so much to <laughs> to focus on the not yet of the now and not yet equation that we almost kind of forget paul in prison was worshiping and he's, he's he was enjoying the lord he wasn't and he wasn't just stoic he was grateful for mm. the cross mm. but also paul himself who's so clear writes romans writes galatians says i felt the sentence of death but this was to make us trust god it's one thing to know facts it's another thing to know the living god now, in the book, you have also talked in terms of uh, how true worship is motivated not by religious duty, but by a revelation of God. You say maturity comes with taking responsibility. I've known some impressively mature young people and sadly a number of very immature old people. And surely the prime calling of every Christian leader must be to pray for those whom they serve. I think perhaps the most refreshing perspective and unusual, sadly, perspective which you bring out in the book is this statement that the church should not be regarded as a building at the end of a cul-de-sac, but a people on a highway. Would you talk to us a little about that? Well, I love that verse where Moses says to Jethro, come with us and we will do you good, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. And so the invitation isn't come to us, it's come with us. Wow. And so I think that very often uh, church has that kind of ambition, come to us, come and we'll become bigger, uh, come to us. And that obviously, wow. that aspiration can be very real in any pastor's heart. He'd love to build a big church. But I think that that line is tremendously helpful, come with us, because it's a reminder that the, the believer the church of God is on a mission. Mm. And the, the, the manifesto, if you like, was go into all the world and preach the gospel, go and make disciples of all the nations. So essentially the people of God are a people on the move. They're not a static people. Mm. Uh, and so it's come with us, come on the journey with us. Uh, so I think that's absolutely essential so that the church retains a kind of missional feel we are we are moving people and so yeah for us our journey we started with about 37 people and then we gradually grew and filled a building and then we planted out a congregation then we went on to buy this larger building because yeah we're on a journey and now several of the young men who were raised 
in that church are now pastoring elsewhere among the nations because that's the whole point. Yes. God said, go into all the world. Mm. And so uh, the whole thing is come and join us on our journey. Yes. And I think the journey can be seen in, in two different ways, if you like. Uh, there is that geographical go into all the world. And then there's also the, the end of personal journey of the Christian, if you like, into his inheritance. Because the story of Moses is from slavery to inheritance. That's the point of the, of the whole story. Come out of being a slave mm -hmm. and become a son and inherit uh, cities you've not built, vineyards you've not planted, a land I've prepared for you. So for the, for the believer, we're all on that kind of a journey, that pilgrim's progress that Bunyan writes about. We're, we're on a journey. And uh, the, so we individually know the challenges that Bunyan wrote about, and Moses is telling us about as we go through, there are all kinds of problems, uh, setbacks, challenges uh, within his experience. Uh, so we're all on a personal journey of getting to know God better and better. And then we're told in uh, Ephesians there are works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk into. Wow. So God's got stuff for individuals yes. and uh, given us individual grace, his providence, guides us, and there are things we're meant to inherit in this life and, of course, into eternity. So there's the geographical journey that the whole church is on, that we're going on a mission, and that's a generational thing, like a little seed that starts but then becomes the biggest tree that you could ever consider. So the kingdom of God, starting, if you like, in Bethlehem uh, and now filling the many, many nations uh, so we are part of that journey, yes. and and we want to raise up sons. We want to raise up people who will go and continue that journey, mm. and then individually, we're on our own journey, coming out of slavery, learning to win battles that used to once upon a time dominate our lives, things mm. that we used to be in slavery to. More and more, we find no, I can overcome that now. That I'm no longer a slave to that. I used to be. Mm -hmm. I'm not anymore. I'm on a journey, and I'm learning to live. As a people, yes. we used to be individuals. We're beginning to be part of a community, mm. valuing other people's gifts and so on. So that we, we, we learn to be part of God's people on God's journey. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's fantastic. That's outstanding stuff. I think perhaps um, it would be good to uh, finish with my, uh, my personal recollection of your story, the story I mentioned earlier, where you were preaching on Exodus. I myself had lately made a, a sort of a recommitment in my, uh, at the end of my teens and was uh, at church and was trying to understand how to connect this very loving God with this people who kept talking about this book. <laughs> they were going on and on about the Bible. But there was a time when you were preaching on prayer from Moses on Exodus. And at the end, you pleaded. You were pleading, please go to each other's homes, meet together, pray, please. And as you spoke, you broke. And it was a moment you obviously hadn't manufactured because you were extremely embarrassed about it. And I thought, he's got it. He's got the thing I've got, that thing in the heart, which says, oh, God, we need you to do it. And you can. Oh, Lord, do it. And I remember it being formative. I thought, ah, we're on the same thing. This is the same thing. And uh, it's a delight to draw attention to this book, God's Treasured Possession, published by IVP, subtitled Walk in the Footsteps of Moses. So thank you very much for, having this, for giving us this time now. My dad, Terry Virgo. 
Thank you, Ben. Joy to be with you. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.